you know that uh, voices do octaves lower tonight, and uh, we're just going to work with that, all right? So I just, uh, but I will let you know, it's probably I'm going to leave as soon as this is over so that I don't spread my sweetness to anyone else. So it's good to speak the word, but it's also good to keep other things to yourself. So anyway, um, just let you know that before we start. But I don't, I think I have enough. We can make it through another session here, an important session concerning what it means to really live by faith. That's what we're thinking about. What is faith? What is that life to which we've been called? So let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and ask you to once again open your word to us. We thank you for it. We thank you you have spoken. You've spoken so that we can have clarity and certainty and understanding and be able to rest ourselves upon you. Teach us how to do that. And we come again and look to you to teach us from your word tonight. And we're asking you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the Bible tells us that we love because he first loved us. We love him because he loved us. Last week we were thinking about that with respect to the whole matter of the fall of mankind. When when God said, if you sin, you'll die. If you eat that fruit, you'll die. He was not kidding. And when... Uh, Eve ate that fruit and handed it to her husband, death took place and death entered the human race and with that a decline, a, a movement of, of people away from God, right? If God had not intervened, if he doesn't take a step, the whole human race is gone because once they lost their touch with God, they also lost their desire for God, which is what Paul says in, in Romans, uh, when he, he talks about this, Romans chapter 3, quoting an Old Testament psalm. There's none that's righteous. Nobody on this earth is righteous. There's no, not one, but here's the big one that, that fits what we're talking about. There is no one who seeks after God. No one who initiates the movement towards God. But God being rich in mercy, what's he do? God initiates by coming towards us. And that's what we thought about last night, the search of God for man. He's been doing that since the fall, coming to man and progressively making himself known so that it would be possible for people to respond to him. And we have in the Word of God, the Old Testament, in which he, for thousands of years, revealed himself to one nation, the nation of Israel, told us who he was, displayed his character, gave us story after story so that we could understand how he responds to situations on this earth. He also included in that a prediction of what he would do in the future in order to bring people back to himself. And in that work of predicting all this, he was also laying the foundation so that you and I would have the chance to receive what he said as, intel, as, as truth, as reality. And then he fulfills it. That's the Old Testament part, but then he fulfills it in these last days. And we're going to be thinking about that in just a moment. God spoke in his Son. And through Jesus Christ, he comes fulfilling, first of all, everything that he said would happen. But then also through the resurrection from the dead, assuring us that his word is accurate, that the truth is there, so that tonight it's possible 
for him to pursue us. And that's where we finished last week. That the pursuit is not just the pursuit of God for the human race as a whole. It comes down to the pursuit of God for your heart and my heart. We love because he first loved us. I'm here tonight because he came and got me. All right? But when he came and got me, there was a response that he brought to pass. And that's what we want to think about tonight. What is the response? What is it that we do when God comes to us? We're coming now to a place where we begin to outline and define what faith really is. I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to begin. I'm just going to read one verse. It's Hebrews 11 verse 6. I think in summing up the whole matter concerning faith, this one is one to understand completely. The writer says here, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Simple verse. It's a simple verse. But I think we could tie a whole lot of our concept of faith to that verse. It helps to unfold to us what God is after in a life when he, got, when he starts to work. Now, the immediate context is a very interesting one. It's, he, he's just been talking about a man named Enoch, right? Enoch. Enoch's a character that we don't know a great deal about. There, we have two things in the New Testament about him that he prophesied once in this passage right here. In the Old Testament, the entire record concerning Enoch has to do with who his father was, who his children were, who his son was, who his grandson was. Grandson was Methuselah. Um, very important position in, in history. But then it says this. He was a man who only lived, how about this, when you put him in, the, in that category. He only lived to 365 years. But that's a third of the life of most of the men that were alive at that time. They're living in the thousand-year range, that 900 to 1,000-year range, and he's out. And the reason he, he was gone was because God took him out as a reward, as a, as a deliverance for his experience. And the writer of Hebrews in uh, verse 5 says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he, f- he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up for, obtain- before, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, that, that's a pretty incredible thought. And, that, and I want to underline just the first point that we have on the paper here. So I'm just going to go through the verse real simple. And this is a simple one. Just let's take the pieces and look at what they say. First thing is, he says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, if you were to ask yourself... What is the great benefit of being a man of faith or a woman of faith? Our tendency is to think in terms of men like Hudson Taylor. If I had faith, I could do great things. All right? I could achieve great things. I could glorify God in certain particular ways if I had the faith to go there. As if the degree of success on this earth in your experience is dependent on your faith. And the fact of the matter is, the writer in Hebrews chapter 11 kind of cuts that whole thought down. Some of the men in this chapter achieved great things by their faith. 
some of them were martyred because of their faith. They didn't achieve anything as far as this world was concerned. The world concluded that they were crazy, that they were worthless, that they did not fit and should be removed, and they removed them. There are some who went to prison, and their life was wasted away from a human perspective in a prison cell. Now, that's important to the writer of Hebrews because um, he is dealing with a group of people who are asking this question. If you've ever asked it, just know you're not the first one that ever asked it. You get in the Christian life, and you're going along, and things you start getting hit with the waves. You know, they start hitting you in the face, and you ask yourself, is this worth it? Is it worth it? Now, he's talking to a group of people here. They're not just having a hard time. They're having a hard time specifically because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is their commitment to him which is earning them the, the dislike of the community around them. And they are beginning to wonder. They've already gone through a flush or a, a period of persecution. The persecution seems to have subsided, but now it is, it's firing up again, and they're, they're just not sure they're up to it again. And they are looking, and there comes seeping into the church a thought that maybe if we just compromise a little on our stand, we can escape this particular persecution. Is it worth it to keep on going? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, it is worth it. And the first thing that he's going to tell them about this, because this, this part on faith is this. Faith pleases God. That's the great value of faith. That's the great value of your life if you're trusting the Lord, is it pleases him. What he wants to do with your life is really up to him. That's part of the teaching of the giftedness of the church. God has a variety of gifts. He has a variety of ministries. He has a variety of effects that he wants to bring to pass through his, the members of his church. That is up to him. He sovereignly puts that in place as he would. But everybody has the opportunity to live by faith, and everybody who does live by faith pleases God. Without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. He's talking about the, the testimony that Enoch had. Without faith, it would have been impossible for him to please God. Now, that is not to say, and I want to make this real clear, that that is not to say that faith is a work that we do that earns us the approval of God. That is not what we're saying here. Because by its very nature, faith can't be that. There is nothing you could ever do to make yourself acceptable to God. You can't do it. That is part of the teaching of the Old Testament. That's part of Jesus' teaching. That's Romans' teaching. That goes the whole way through the Bible. Once a man, once the human race, sinned against God, departs from what he has in mind, and is apart from God, there is no way for them to come back on their own. They are going to have to be rescued so that there's nothing I could ever do. There's no work that I could ever do that would ever please God. What is faith? Faith is coming to receive the rescue. And when a person does that, God is pleased by it. God loves to be trusted. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that God loves to be trusted. Why shouldn't it surprise us? Because we were made in his image. You love to be trusted. You don't like it when you tell people something and they don't believe you. True enough? Maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe you. But I've never met a lot of people who want to be 
rejected in what they say, who want to be left, who, who want people to, to say no to them or that they don't. You want to be trusted. You want to be able to trust people. This idea of tr- you like it when people, God loves to be trusted. The highest commendations he gives in the, in the gospels to people are because they trusted him. Because they listened to what God said and responded to it. I've never seen such great faith. No, not in Israel. This is a man, this is the kind of thing. It is a response to faith. And that's very encouraging to us. So again, I want to remind you that there is nothing that you could ever do that can make you acceptable to God. But I want to say the other side of it because I don't know who might, might listen to this at some point. There is nothing you've ever done that can keep you away from God. If you'll come, that's that's the graciousness of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into God's favor, but there is nothing you have ever done which cuts you off permanently from God. And that's part that's in the verse. Faith pleases God. That's part of what um, Hanley Mole says concerning the prayer of Ephesians Uh, chapter 3, Paul prays that God would strengthen the church with might in the inner man. He says, "I I want God to come into your life, and I want him to strengthen you. And immediately, when we think about being strengthened, we strengthened for ministry, strengthened to do something, and here's what he says that he wants to have them strengthened to do, strengthened to believe and strengthened to love. How about that? That's what you need strength for, to believe and to love. But the way he describes the, the concept of believing, he says this, that you might dwell, that Christ, the Lord Jesus, might dwell in your hearts by faith. Hanley Mole looking at that, so it, it obviously he's talking about believers, so it can't mean that he's praying that the Lord would come in. But the concept he says is this, that Christ might be at home there. Because you trust him. If you want to, you know, you know what it is to be in a place where you feel at home because things you just, we're, this is my kind of people. Well, when you run into a place where, where Christ is at home, it's because his kind of people trust him. All of us have that available to us. I want you to note that. All of us have available to us. So that's the first thing in the verse. We could develop that a long time the importance that your life could please God. But let's go on to the next one. All right, next thought here. Faith seeks God. Faith seeks God. He says in this thing, he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those. He who comes to God. All right. Now this all is so simple here, and it's easy to pass up what's actually being said. But you remember what we were talking about a, a few weeks ago about Jesus making appeals to individuals concerning life. And he says, if, if you thirst, what should you do about that thirst? Well, come to me. And we were talking about the nature of faith and the fact that faith is a very personal interaction. You can't take the personal side out of faith. It's not just believing certain things. It's believing a person. You come to him. That the human race, when they are apart from God, stays apart from God. And we develop religions which enable us to get the sense that we have done something for God without actually being close to Him. All right? That's why we, we prefer the idols 
because idols make no demands on our time or again they might make a demand in the sense that there's something i have to do to worship them but once i'm done i'm free i'm not bound but the whole thought here is that uh in christianity is that that god has called you to himself right and he's called you to himself you cannot live the life of faith without a personal element to it. He who comes to God. You see, that's a big thing because the human race doesn't seek after God. But now he says something has taken place. He says, the one who, who has this work of faith occurring in their heart begins to turn towards God. Now, there's an important element of that for all of us. If you aren't seeking God tonight, you are not living by faith. Something is seriously wrong. Because that's what faith does. Faith comes to God. Right? If you were thirsty and they wanted to exercise faith, what do you do? You come to the Lord, right? That's what he said. If you are thirsty, come to me. Come to me, all you that are laboring and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. But what do you have to do? You have to come to him. You have to come. You have to approach him. Faith has to seek after God. And here is one of the, we can jump way ahead, there's a reward to this life, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but that reward is actually getting to know Him. And isn't it wonderful that in God's providence and the way He's worked it out, that every step in our receiving from Him by faith deepens our understanding of who He is. He doesn't give it to us from afar. We come right to him. We receive from him, and we interact with him, and we begin to know him right from the very moment, right? If you were old enough to remember when you were actually converted, you remember that. You remember that moment when you finally came, and you said, Lord, it's in your hands, and you were conscious you had met the Lord because he's there. He who comes to God. Faith seeks God any concept of faith that doesn't have coming to God and seeking him at its core is inaccurate to the scriptures faith is always moving towards the living God right now those two are fairly simple the next one we have a little trouble with again if it's a little harder to explain because he says then for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder. He says, if you're going to seek God, if I'm going to turn my heart towards God when I haven't been towards God, there are two things that I have to actually take hold of from God to do that. The faith has to have two things happen. What are they? They have to believe that God is and that he rewards. All right? Now, it would be very simple to go past the first section quickly. But I'm not going to go past that. I'm going to spend a long time on that. Because it, this idea of, of coming to him, if you take it at the simplest level, you would have to say, well, a Muslim who's seeking God was also going to be rewarded. Because they do sometimes seek God. It's not the God of the Bible. But if you reduce this just to the fact that a person believes that there is a God, you would have to include them in the thought, and that's far from the writer's thinking. Now, in order to to get hold of where we're at here, um, let's note that 
the book of Hebrews is called by the writer of Hebrews a word of exhortation. He says, I'm, at the end of the book, he says, thank you for bearing with this word of exhortation. In other words, it would be the same way as saying this is a written sermon. Right? This is a written sermon. It's probably the most organized of the New Testament books. It, 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 he, guy's got it in line the whole way. It's one message. The chapter we are in is chapter... I won't ask you because I'm not allowed to interact here. So anyway, it's chapter 11. There are only 13 chapters. We are at the application section of the message. And just like any good message, when, if it's done right, when you get to the application, you're supposed to be applying what you already said. And you can't take the application of a message out and have any sense of it unless you find out what was said before that. Last week we talked about how God pursued us, and the writer of Hebrews is going to underscore exactly what we said. He began this message, this word of exhortation, by saying this, God, after He spoke to us long ago, or spoke to the fathers long ago in the prophets, in these last days spoken to us in His Son. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, whose fathers? The Hebrews' fathers. The people He's writing to are Jewish believers. They have a Jewish background. They've become saints. They are now believing in the Lord. But they have a record of who God is. The Gentile people didn't have that. But he says, he talked to our fathers. And he gave us that Old Testament writing. He spoke through that. And now he says, now in this day, in these last days, and that's all the time from the Lord on, he has spoken again. And he spoke as what we said last week. How has he spoken? He's spoken us into the person, or spoken to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He spoke to us in the Lord. Right? Now that's important. He's spoken to us. Then he's going to go on in that book to tell you all the things that you should learn about Jesus Christ which enable you to get close to God. Now, we don't have time to expound the book, but he starts off talking about the fact that we have. That Jesus became a real man because he came to get us. And at the end of that chapter, he says that it's because of that that we can come to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. We can meet him at that throne because of his coming to us. He's going to go on to talk about the fact that he's a high priest for us. He is a prophet for us. He is a whole series of things for us. He is mediating a covenant. And the whole point of that covenant is to keep us close to God, the end part of that covenant. There's your sins, your wicked deeds will be remembered no more, but everybody will know them. They're all going to know God because of that covenant. That's what he's working towards. And all this has been revealed. And as he goes through and discusses the various things that Jesus is to us, and that's a very scrappy um, discussion of it, but let's say this, as he goes through all that, he tells us, now, listen to what has been said, right? Chapter 2, he says, therefore, we have to pay close attention to what we've heard, what we've heard in the Old Testament, what we've heard in the person of Jesus Christ, what we heard in his resurrection, what we hear when we find out that he has ascended into heaven, 
we have to take close attention to that. He says, so that we don't drift out of it, so we don't let it slip away from us, so we don't we can't handle these things as unimportant matters. And I'm not going to go through all of the book of Hebrews on this because that's not our job tonight. But he's constantly coming back to this fact we've heard. Now we have to do something about what we've heard. We have, we have to apply that. You see, when he says here that the one who comes to God must believe that he is, he's talking about believe that the God who has unveiled himself to mankind, is. That he is as he says he is. Because if we don't receive, this is the nature of faith. We said that faith never is, it it never constructs anything on its own. It doesn't build anything on its own. It builds on top of something else. Faith is a response. It's not constructive. We can't sit in our minds and construct a God and then trust him. That's what idolatry is all about. I think God is like. You see, when I was at at Furman University, which was at that time a Baptist university, I was taught that the Old Testament was the collection of the best. It was kind of that's way they were at least nice enough to call it the best. The best attempts of men to understand who God was. It was men's Men reaching out, looking around, and trying to figure out who God was, and this is, this is the record of it. Well, if that's the way you look at it, then you don't know who God is, because that means that we constructed him. And how can I ask a construct of my mind to deliver me? And that is the, that's the humor in the Old Testament of the whole idea of idolatry. They thought of it in terms of the idols that you could see. You build this idol and you say, this idol is my God. You made it. You shaped it the way you wanted it to be. You painted it the colors you wanted it to look like. You put it in the place in the house that it's going to stand because it couldn't walk there on its own. It has no life in itself. It has not, The whole life of that is you. And then you fall down in front of it and say, save me. Now, that's a physical idol. That is something that people make, and, and it's still done on the, in the world today. Right? Again, there's idols that are made in, in countries because I want the idol to give me a particular thing. Now, you can do that same thing in your own mind. You can construct a God who fits your way of life. He fits in with who you are. He loves the things you love, hates the things you hate. He stays in there. He is. And then you can call on him to save you. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. I mean, that's, we know, he knows, the Bible recognizes it takes place among the human race. But he says, we must believe that God is. We must believe that the one who sought and spoke was accurate in his speaking. And that what he said about himself is true. Right? That all those things he said, so that, again, just to go back over last week, we were in that first chapter of Genesis. And what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's who God really is. The God who's out there made everything that you see. And he is outside of it. He owns it. 
He doesn't live in creation someplace. He lives outside of it. He is a God who, again, this is what the revelation was. We just we talked about a few of them. He is a God who could speak that into existence in a very short time and have it all work correctly in the end. No second, you know, there's no second models to it. There's no, there is no shakedown cruise with creation because when he said it, it was good. Right? That's the presentation of the Word of God as to the kind of God that we serve. Big enough to create the whole thing, smart enough to make it all work the first time, and that everything that he created had a common element to it, and that is that it was beneficial. Everything was beneficial. Nothing wasted. It all fit. Okay, that's what God said. Now, that's not all that he said. But when the writer's speaking here, and he's saying, you must believe that God is, you must believe that that God is, that the God who spoke is. Now, you may not know all about him, but you have to believe that what he wrote was written so that he could reach you, that what he wrote was true, right? We're always, there's, for those of us that have known the Lord, for me, it's 50 years. And I'm still reading it to find out deeper and deeper understanding of who that God really is. But nevertheless, from the very beginning, we understood that it was, it was his word, and that's who he is. You see, once you read that word, okay, well, last week we came to a, uh, a final conclusion here. This is the great statement. If you want to know how it is that God's going to hold you responsible at the end, for what was in that word, this is the primary reason that you're responsible, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is God's stamp of approval on who he is. It is his testimony that he is more than any man ever was, and that he is the Christ, the one that he described in the Old Testament. That's it. There it is. Now, all of us have that piece of information. And we will do one of two things with it. This is one of two things. This is where faith comes in. Either I will receive it and build my life on what he said, or I will not receive it. I will not believe in the God. I will not trust the God who is revealed in that. And I'll walk away from it. We might do that, as Mr. Carroll used to say, he used to use this word all the time, we might do that very politely. We might not say it out loud, but we don't build on it because here's what saying, you've got to come. He who comes to God must believe that he is because he's going to have to construct his life around what is said. That's why in the passage it might say, you know, when we're thinking of faith seeks God, or faith pleases God, that was the first point. Faith seeks God. You could say faith believes that there's a God, but I didn't put it that way. Faith listens to God. He understand, it understands that the God who is revealed is there, and now it listens to what God has said and begins to order its life in confidence around what he said. So it comes to him, but it builds on that. Now on your notes, it says we're going to, at this point, look at Moses. But we're not. All right, it's one problem about writing the notes before you really have it completely formulated. So I'm going to just skip Moses right at the moment and go to the last point. 
right? So we're saying here that um, faith takes into account. It, it listens to God. And on that last point where we have, faith finds God. Because at the very beginning, when you turn to God, there's two things you're going to have to believe. One, that the revelation is accurate. And the second is that God will actually fulfill that on your behalf. You know, I want to talk about that one. It's really not that complicated, but this is where the pressure on the human race comes. See, there is, there is an enemy that would like to see every person in this room destroyed. We don't, we don't have, again, when we look at the Word of God, um, the hatred of the devil for God is pretty strong. And when he comes, he comes to destroy things that God wants to make beautiful. He wants to destroy your life. He will put all kinds of pressures on you. That's why he would put pressure on a person not to believe, even though there was a resurrection, not to believe what God said. Convince them. But suppose they get past that. I've been through it too long to not know that there's another pressure. A pressure that comes on the souls when they decide they're going to seek God, and that is that I can't do it. God doesn't care about my life. He might care about other people's lives. He might care about the world. But when it comes down to God and me, not so. Not so. And if I take the time, because it's going to cost this, these people where he's talking about the cost that's going to be involved in following, not that I earn something with that either, but if you're going to follow the Lord, you might get in all kinds of trouble on this earth. And the question would come, if I do that, if I commit myself, will I achieve the end that God promised? Will he actually pay attention to my life? Is it worth it for me to get involved in this? I want to say that's the, you have to believe two things. First, that the revelation is accurate. And what's the second? That he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, if you go back to chapter 10, there's a place he says, don't throw away your confidence at this point because he's talking to a group of people they're kind of wavering here am i going to go on or not he says don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward and i wanted to go over this particular point because the same word for reward is used in both those cases he's a rewarder he does pay up on those that seek him and the reward is finding him all right the reward of seeking god is finding him you can't go to this chapter and conclude that the reward of seeking God is giving blessing on this earth because his examples fail to express that. No, the, the reward of seeking for God is finding him. But that takes time, and that's not continuing. Mean, we, we, we find that out in, in sections here. Because he does say there are people here who... They didn't fully recognize or fully realize that experience while they were here, but they will. They will. And you have to believe that at the very beginning. That you count, and your life counts, and if you devote yourself to this, you will end in the right place because God is true. Just as sure as he, you could say to Adam, if you eat that fruit, you will die. You can say, if you will seek me, you will find me. And if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, this is the appeal of the Old Testament in so many different places. God calling to people to seek him. Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? The first 
cry of the heart of God after a fallen race. And it continues right through there, right? Probably my favorite psalm, Psalm 27. When you said, seek my face, my soul, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Why did David seek? He, He loved because God first loved him. And God asked him. But it wasn't private to him. It's an it's important verse there because he says that when you said, and, and you said, seek my face, he's, he's saying, like I would say tonight, seek God's face. And you might individually hear, I'm going to seek his face. The appeal is to the whole human race. Seek me. Seek to know me. And here's the promise. It's a tremendous, we're going to live by faith. We have to know this. Faith seeks God. But faith is convinced it will find God, and it will find God in their experience. Now, in order to get this all put together, to see how, what, what he's talking about, I want to go to one of his illustrations, and that's where we're going to think about the man Moses. Right? In the Word of God, there are two characters that are primarily put before us in this development of faith, and one's One's Abraham, and the other is Moses, right? Now, David was a, had great faith, too, but he's not put... Notice in the, in the chapter, he's not, he doesn't, by the time he gets there, he skips David. Not to say that David is unimportant, or that his life is unimportant. But in the Word of God, it's the experience of Moses and the experience of Abraham that are primarily set before us as examples of what it means to trust him and what you can expect from God. Moses had a very interesting experience in life. It's just a twist of circumstances, which is kind of unbelievable. He was born in a race of slaves. There they were. They were as much in slavery as anybody's ever been in slavery. He was born at a time when, <coughs> excuse me, when the Pharaoh had determined, because of the their slaves were becoming so populace that they were going to have to contain them or else they were going to overwhelm, overrun them. They, they wouldn't be able to contain the slave um, situation. And so he was born at a time when the pharaohs had ordered the killing of all the children, the babies that were male in the Hebrew race. So that's a bad star. You know, you're in a group of slaves and you're over here. And then through that twist that we won't go into all the way, you, you, you're probably pretty familiar with it. Moses ends up having two unique experiences that that fit together here. One is he becomes a prince in Egypt. He becomes, through through that circumstance, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. A prince. He's He's got the inside. Now, the world that he lived in, a few had it all, and everybody else supported them. Right? We have no idea. I keep saying that to students. You have no idea how unique in the history of mankind the situation in the United States is. Where the majority of people can live a life which is free and relatively prosperous in most cultures. Not only today, but throughout history, a few people have had it all and the rest were there, supported them in that. Moses has now reached the pinnacle of what you could have in the Egyptian economy. He is inside the palace. Moses also had another unique experience in his life. 
because of the way that came to pass, his mother was appointed to be his nurse when he was little. So he was brought up by his mother inside the court. An interesting combination. Because what is taught to a child when they are very small sticks with them. For all of us that have had children and all of you who have children, it's very important to remember those opening years are extremely important. What is taught there is extremely important. And uh, so he was taught by his mother. Apparently he was taught. Now, what was the word of God in his day? Well, we don't know all that it was out there, but we know it's really pretty skimpy. <laughs> this is, it's been 400 years since God spoke to Abraham, and here's what he tells him. First, he gives him a promise that uh, if you will follow me, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. I'll make you a great nation. I'm going to make you into a big nation, and I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. That's the promise that he was given at the very beginning. In chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Right? He makes a covenant with him. And what he says in that covenant, very important, he says, now I'm going to give you this land. But before you get this land, just know this, that you are going to spend 400 years in another land. Right? That was going to happen way after um, Abraham is off the scene. He says, you're going to spend 400 years there, and then I'll bring you back. Now, that's the entirety of the communication of God that we have with Abraham. Well, there's a little bit more, but it, it doesn't change any of that. Apparently, Moses' mother had related that information to him, which was the revelation of God, the kind of God that he was, that he was true. Now, we don't know how much more she knew of it. We just don't know. But now he is in a a dilemma. He is living with all the blessings of being in court, which means you are somebody. You get an education. People take care of you. You're well-fed. You're respected. You're all these things. But he's also from a race of slaves. If he listens to that word, what's he going to do with it? What's he going to think about with regards to it? You know the story. And let's read it there. Let's, let's go to that particular, it's right over the page there in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll begin reading in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, right? He didn't do anything about it until he got to a grown age. Seems he was about 40 years old, so he was grown up. And he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering that the reproach of Christ was greater riches than the treasure, treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I want you to note here that, that at the end there, he says, when he's looking to the reward, that is the same word. He says, Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Those, God is a rewarder of those that seek him. And he says that here, Moses had respect for the reward. And so he makes a decision. Well, what's that decision? His decision is to build his life around what God has said and the revelation from God. He built his life around that. That's incredible. Because in order to build his life around that, he risked and did lose all of the blessings that he had on earth. I mean, this, you talk about somebody and you're throwing your opportunity away. This is as big an opportunity as anybody's ever thrown away. 
potentially a place of leadership. Some have suggested that maybe he could have been Pharaoh one day. Maybe he could have. I don't know. We're not going to go that direction. But he's going to have authority. He's going to have possibility. He's going to have as good a life as there was to be had in that day. But God had said that I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those that bless you. Talking about this group of slaves, they were being cursed at that time. And Moses was smart enough to figure out that if that's what God said and the God who who has revealed himself is going to keep his word and he has kept his word and that the 400 years is just about up, it is time for me to get on the right side of this equation. And he did. He stepped away from Egypt, gave it all up in order to be identified with the people of God. Now, in his process, he is going to make a lot of mistakes. And he is going to do it wrong. He's going to end up 40 years in a wilderness waiting around for God to to let him get to a place where he's capable of doing for that people what he wanted to do for that people. And we could make a lot out of the fact that while he's out there, you know, he has to grow up in his faith and all the rest of it, but the very fact that he's out there was pleasing to God. Is that that important? He's already pleasing to God. He hasn't done anything yet. Why is he pleasing to God? Because he struck, he listened to what God said, and he built his life around it. He believed that he was. And he believed that he would be rewarded. He would be rewarded if he sought God. And eventually he will be rewarded. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I haven't. To stand on a mountain and let God parade his glory in front of you. Moses gave a lot up. He had a tremendous experience. But we have to also note that even though he had that experience, even though he heard the voice, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, one of the great revelations of the heart of God to mankind, and it was given, he got to hear it, he got to write it down because I heard that. (laughs) This is what's in. While I was watching glory go by, although he did get that, he also lived the rest of his life in tents. He got kicked around by the people he was trying to lead. He was not listened to. He, was, he could come to the end of his life. In his final prophecy, it's a very sad prophecy in the sense that there's so much gloom in it because he knows that the people aren't going the right direction. And yet, he was rewarded because he got to know God. He was the servant of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible to please him. If you don't have that in your life, well then, it's not pleasing. But you can please God. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Because what does a man do? He turns to God. He who comes to God, who turns and directs his attention towards God, from that moment on, you've got great potential. Because you're coming to the one from whom you can receive the fullness of salvation. Everything you'll ever need, he is ready to give because Everything he did was so that he could take you from there and bring you to himself. Maybe one of my favorite verses on what the Lord did for us at the cross was this. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. To bring us out of that mess we were in and take us right to the throne of God and give me a chance that tomorrow morning I can get up and I can address in my room the eternal God. And know that he is there to listen because everything between me and him has been removed in Jesus Christ. He who comes to God 
must believe that he is. He's everything that he revealed himself to be. He is true. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of you. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who seeks to save that which is lost and provided in Jesus Christ the way for you to come back. Now, this is sort of an elementary prince or teaching on, on faith, but it's, it's where we're going to start because everything that we're going to say later builds off of this. So what's it do? Faith is something that seeks God. When God begins to work in your heart and you are coming to a place of faith, you're going to have a search for him. And I'm going to ask you again tonight, right at this particular point, is that true for you? Your only other option is you're seeking life on this earth. One or the other is the dominant feature of your life, one or the other, right? Because either you're finding your life here or you're finding it there. There's no other place to go, and you will find your life. I mean, you're going to try to anyway. It's just that's, that's what it means to live. You're going to try to find it. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and he rewards those who diligently seek him, who give themselves to that effort. If you don't know him tonight, you say, well, I just don't know who he really is. There it is. There it is. Read it. If you don't know anything about him, take a gospel and read through it. That's the final revelation. The Son of God revealed to us. Listen to him. Ask him to show you who he is, and he'll show you. It's right there. And I want to say that although I've spent my whole life teaching the Word of God, I want to say this. I said this to students this morning, teaching the Word of God. I'm trying to teach them how to teach the Word of God. It's really not that complicated. It means what it says. You can read it, and you can understand it. It's not rocket science. What keeps it apart from us is we don't want to hear it. It is the human responsive flesh that doesn't want to listen that makes it difficult. If it wasn't for that, it's plain. It's clear. Follow him. Come to him. Trust him. Trust the living God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, but with faith, you can please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is as he revealed himself and that he will reward those who turn to him and seek him. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we come and give you thanks for your grace towards us as individuals. We thank you for every person in this room who has sought you. We thank you that the gospel covers everybody. And for those that are ready to come, you're ready to meet. And we're coming and asking you to move in us. Father, we thank you that you moved on Moses before you brought judgment on Egypt. That he was on the right side. We come and ask you to bring us, each one of us, to the right side. You know, if there's judgment hanging on this earth, Lord, meet us to follow you. And we're coming to trust you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.